about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard, speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with something sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were twenty-four other thrones, and seated on them were twenty-four elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was, look, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes, in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had a face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its even under his wings. Day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and, the worship, and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the centre of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne, and when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, 
You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nations. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature, in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb to be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Oh, Father, not to us, not to us, but to your name be the glory, for your love and for your faithfulness. Father, we don't want to know more about us right now. We want to know more about you. And so we ask as we look at your word right now that you would speak it into our soul and you would instruct us in your ways that we might live worthy of you, you who are the only one worthy of power and honor and glory. Amen. This is the final week, as Roger has said, of our uh, Reimagining Public Faith series. Uh, In this series, we've been journeying through, contemplating, what does it look like to live a publicly engaged Christian life that isn't controlled by fear, isn't on the backward foot all the time, and isn't just narrow, embracing some words we say, but all of our lives, our workplace, our uh, street library, skateboard park, if you go to one of those, you know, our apartment building, whatever it is, embraces all of it. And effectively, what we've been talking about is is taking the little spheres of our lives and and using them in one way to protest against bad love, when people love money too much and it destroys others, and also using little parts of our lives to kind of echo God's future city that's coming and inviting and summoning people into it. But the thing that we've been talking about with both of those things and through the whole series is basically been about the way we use power as Christians. I've been calling on you to use your power in every sphere of life for the sake of a public political witness to who Jesus Christ is and what he is about to bring about. That's complicated, isn't it? Because we as Christians, if we're honest, have made a lot of mistakes with power. In fact, if you were to look through the last 200 years of Australian history and and take out the common thread in all of the mistakes the church has made, I think you could probably argue that misuse of power is in the midst of them all. That might be uh, thinking about the colonial settlement of Australia and the work of missionaries, even in some of the violent bloodshed. Or abuse of children within sacred places like this or the cover-up that clergy have done, or simply our forceful, militant pushing of values upon society at times. Christians get power wrong a lot. Uh, This I started thinking about in particular when when I went to Rome a long time ago now, and I was kind of touring around and having a look at the Colosseum, having a look at Palatine Hill, looking at the kind of old emperor uh, residences and things like that. And you look at all these buildings, you think, these are majestic. I I wonder what they would have looked like if they actually still were like covered in marble. And and I I was walking around Rome wondering, I wonder where all the marble went. 
Then, of course, I wandered over to the Vatican, and I thought, oh, there it all is. It's a kind of a peculiar and slightly disturbing thing that's happened in Rome. It's a strange psychology as a, as a city. It has a big sense of itself. Uh, on one hand, you have the Roman Empire that grew and established, and, and all of a sudden the church pops up and, and spreads, and the Holy Roman Empire becomes a thing. And it's like the, the, the prettiness of the empire just got transferred over to the church, which is kind of a little bit disturbing when you think about it. Did the church spread as a powerful conquest in exactly the same way as the Roman Empire? Do we use power like everyone else? I think the answer we see in Revelation 4 and 5 is an emphatic no. In fact, uh, when you look at Jesus Christ and you look at his kingdom and you look at the person and, and, and his power and the way he wields it and the way he understands it, that what opens up in Christianity is a whole different vision of what power is and how to wield it. And I want to suggest that perhaps the way uh, Jesus uses power is not only perfect, it is stunning. And that when we in public life lift up power and use our power, wielding it in the way Jesus did, we answer some of the problems that so many people around us see. And we begin to truly image the city that is to come. So what I want to do is really simple. I want to tell you three things about power from Revelation 4 and 5. Then I want to talk about what to do with it. Three things about power, then what to do with it. First thing is this. From Revelation 4 in particular and beginning of 5, someone has to wield power. Someone has to wield power. Really, the question that drives this whole section of Revelation is, who is worthy of wielding power? Did you notice that in both of the songs that pop up, that word worthy is there? And really, this whole scene, this, kind of, this, this journey into the, the heavenly throne room that John's invited into is, is a way of debunking some myths about Rome that had grown in this, this era of Christianity. Rome was seen as the invincible, oppressive, mighty, or conquering force. And it demanded a complete and utter worship and honoring uh, because of who it was. It literally set up a cult of worship of the imperial insignia. But what happens is John is summoned up into the heavenly throne room, and the heaven in the Bible is like the top CEO's office of reality. It's not just a place with harps and stuff. It's where things get done. John gets invited up to that place and he looks into the room and there's nothing about Rome there. There is a God at the center who always has been, who was and is and is to come. He established all things and he is worthy rather than Rome. It's a clear vanquishing of the myth that Rome is the all-conquering eternal power and force in the world. No, it is instead the one enthroned. But did you notice in the passage as well that there, there's a problem in heaven? A problem about power even in that perfect place up there. John says in 5 verse 1, Then I saw in the right hand of the one who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides sealed with seven seals. Who is worthy to break the seals? And no one was found. What you have here is what would be an ancient will scroll. 
someone would be in the presence of uh, some of his family, perhaps some friends, some neighbors, and he would write out his will and testament for when he died. And then he'd roll it up, uh, or she'd roll it up, uh, and then the witnesses would stamp all of their seals on the document. And only when that person died could the witnesses break off the seals and their will could be executed on behalf of the person who was deceased. So we have here in heaven a will, something to be executed in reality. And where does it stand? It stands at the right hand of the throne. It is the powerful will and testament of the Almighty God. Someone has to take up the scroll and execute God's rule in history. Because everything is perfect in heaven, but on earth, Rome rules. But as the angel cries out for someone to unroll it and to enact it, no one is found. To the point where John starts to weep. And weep he should, because if if God's will can't be enacted in reality, that means that Rome wins. It means that violence reigns. It means that oppression is the final chapter in the history of humanity, world without end. The one who can lift up the scroll and unroll it and and, and enact God's judgment is able to usher in the purposes, the renewal, the remaking of the world that God longs for. And so John weeps. But then one of the elders says, do not weep. See the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. You see, someone has to wield the power of God and enact the final chapter of human history. And here it is, the triumphant Messiah, uh, the root of David, the person out of the tribe of Judah, long prophesied in Daniel 7. He walks into the throne room. He gets a Thor-like hammer from God, and he walks out into reality, executes God's plan, and vanquishes all of God's enemies. It's just that in Revelation 5, there's no Thor. Instead of an all-conquering hero, blood dripping on his sword, walking in, you see a victim walk into the throne room. Not someone who perpetrates violence, but a victim of violence. A lamb looking as if it had been slain. You see, someone has to wield power, and who gets to wield it? Not the all-conquering violence of Rome but someone who has willingly suffered in his own body the violence of men for the sake of the world. There is no safer pair of hands than the slain lamb. Someone has to enact the will of God and only, only, only Jesus is worthy. And you see, that's the second thing we see from this passage Uh, is that real power, real powers we we see in the worthy Lamb of God, it's not exploitative. It sacrifices. It gives of itself. It costs. You see in verse 9, a song that is sung in heaven, and in it you get the explanation as to why the Lamb is worthy. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. You see, the way the Lamb has used His power 
is to self-sacrifice himself. To offer up his own blood. It's described that with his blood he purchases. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a marketplace word. It's for you know, buying apples or oranges. But when you pair it with people, all of a sudden, you're talking about the slave markets of the ancient world. You're talking about the price that was necessary to, to pull someone out of a house of slavery and set them free. And what the lamb does is with his blood, he purchases people out from under every slavery, every false power, every death, every condemnation, from every place over all the earth. You see, when Rome went out to every tribe and tongue and nation, it conquered and it pressed down and it put people into slavery. But when Jesus Christ comes out, He doesn't come over, he comes under. And he pulls you out and he makes you, what does it say? A kingdom and priests to reign forever. Rome oppressively makes you a slave, but the lamb takes you out of slavery and makes you a king. His power is wielded for the sake of others at cost to himself. His power is used to set people free. Richard Borkham talks about this moment uh, in Revelation 4, and he says what's on view here uh, is two different types of rule, a different kind of rule from Caesar's, a kingdom founded not on exploitative power, but on sacrificial service. That is what makes Jesus the safest pair of hands to enact the will of God, to write the final stage of the human story and to to enact what God wants in the world. And you know, his purchasing buys you out from under anything you think holds you. I don't know if you're in church tonight thinking you're held by something. I want to say that the blood that Jesus has shed has already set you free. He's already paid for your slavery. He's already pulled you out to serve him instead. Do not believe the lie that you are still a slave. But the reality of the way Jesus uses power in the passage is that the way he wields power, this is the third thing, is it becomes the yardstick by which we can measure all power everywhere. And you see this in the passage in the way uh, that Jesus, the, the, the slain lamb, enters the throne scene. So you see in verse 6 that he enters uh, Where does he go? Standing in the center of the throne. right? So he's not on the edge, he's right in the middle. He's not on the edge of heaven, a shameful figure, kind of okay, but not quite. He's brought right to the middle. And then what happens is, finally in heaven they get a new song. They've been singing the same song for thousands of years, right? Since God made the world, millions of years. Uh, They finally get a new track. They must be so excited. Uh, And they all pick up this song about the Lamb. And so you have the Lamb at the center, and then the first people take up the chorus. And then uh, you have thousands of angels in verse 11, and they take up a new chorus. And then you have around them all the creatures of heaven and earth all taking up another chorus. The Lamb at the center, then a circle, then a circle, then a circle. He is at the center of all things now. The only power that heaven will accept looks and tastes and feels like the slain lamb. And what that means 
is that any, any other way of power is permanently exposed, delegitimized, and pronounced and condemned. When you hold the abuses of the church up beside the Lamb, they stand condemned. Where the church has used its power to press down the truth rather than to step free, it stands condemned. Where it abused the vulnerable, it stands condemned before him who offered his life for the world. For the CEO's office who uses their power to create great profit for people but crushes others, he stands condemned, she stands condemned before the Lamb. But it's not just the high levels of power, is it? It's the next level down and the next level down and the next level down. Down to the individual little uses of power that happen every day between ordinary people. Ordinary words, ordinary interactions, all made of little power plays. Built upon domination. See, the reality when we come up against Jesus is we start to realize something about ourselves. As James Hunter says, within fallen humanity... All power is tainted. Infected by the same tendencies towards self-aggrandizing domination. It is this power and the spirit that animates it whose sovereignty Christ came to break. You see, when we see this scene and we see the lamb at the center, we start to realize that really all of us, we are all just little Caesars. Pressing out with our coercive dominion around the people around us. Wanting them to subject to our way, to who we are, to what we need, to our version of who they should be for us. Not who they are. Using our power to build and deify ourselves rather than to set them free. You see, Jesus the Lamb becomes the measure by which every single act of power through all of time is measured. And it finds all of us in the wrong. And yet, at exactly the moment it exposes us, it summons us to a different way. You see, the, the, the fourth thing I want to say tonight, and the way we wield power is that what we are being summoned to from Revelation 4 and 5 is to not live like little Caesars, but to live like little lambs. To wield our power like our lamb. To not be about self-aggrandizing domination, but about humble, gentle, self-sacrificial service. To be not of the kingdom of Rome, but of the kingdom of the Christ. Let me tell you two things about how that works. First thing is this. The first thing you've really got to know is that you have power. I meet so many Christians who think power resides somewhere else. In politics, uh, in someone else's office, in someone higher than them, in someone in some other place. You know, we don't have much power. I can't do much with the way uh, the world is, with the life I've been given, with the position that I have. But that is to ignore Revelation 5, which says what? That God has made you a kingdom and priest to serve God. He's given you power and authority to live out His ways. And it's to deny the reality of everyday life. Let me tell you a story of, 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 of power. 
I've told this story before, but I couldn't think of a better one. Uh, there's a woman, Sarah, in America, and she is probably the, the person who you would think would have the least power. Her whole career was rather simple. She spent it all at the end of the grocery crew uh, uh, line, bagging groceries. Bagging groceries. You, you kind of think someone like that doesn't really have much power in life. There's no one under them. There's no one, you know, really looking out for leadership from them. You know, that's not really a powerful position, but... She wreaked havoc in a supermarket because everyone wanted to be in her queue rather than everyone else's. So there's all these checkout people like having nothing to do all day. Uh, and the reason why people all wanted to be, have their stuff bagged by her is because she listened to them. She asked questions of them. And she actually went away and prayed for them. And the next time she said, I, I walked away and I prayed that God would help you with that conversation you had to have with your daughter and that issue you're having at work and that problem you're having with this person in your life. And, and people lapped that up. People loved that. You know, at her funeral years later, standing room only. Tell me that she didn't wield power. That all those little moments and conversations and gestures and prayers weren't an act of power. Weren't a decision to not be a little Caesar, but to be a little lamb. To not turn those moments into, oh, I'm just stuck being a grocer day by day. But into moments where I'm, I'm here to bless people day by day like my lamb set me free. So I set people free day by day. Praying for them, asking, listening, praying into what is happening for them. She used her power like the lamb. Don't you realize you have power? But the second thing you've got to do is use your power in self-sacrifice rather than exploitation. Use your power to free others rather than deify yourself. You know, if um, someone looked onto your life, um, the way you uh, say that, there was, you had different columns. You have like your apartment life, your work life, your family life, your friend life. And people got to give you a, like a, a scale of how you use your power. What do you think they'd say? Oh, you're a bit of a Caesar in the apartment, but you're a bit more like a lamb at work. What would it look like? You know, uh, there's a, a guy at Cottage who works at Woolworths. And he's uh, in charge of a distribution center, which basically keeps you alive, by the way. That's where all your food comes from. Uh, so you should thank him sometime. Uh, and in the last month, he's had to cut a deal with the, uh, the trade unions as a way of looking after the workers in the distribution center. And I don't know if you know anything about union trade deals, but they're not fun places to be, not good rooms to be in. They're, they're full of power plays and, and difficulty and haggling and lying and all this kind of stuff. And uh, this guy Cottage was thinking, how am I going to do this? This is his first time negotiating in this room. And he made a really simple decision. He walked in and he said, listen, my bosses, they've given me this. I can give this to you. This is all I can give. I don't want to haggle you down. I'm just going to give it to you now. I think you deserve it. Can't give you anything more. I'm sorry, but I'm just going to give it to you. I think they were kind of gobsmacked at that. Mainly I get that from the fact that it, uh, what was offered was almost unanimously passed. At the meeting when they were announcing what was happening, uh, uh, this guy at Cottage, uh, he had this moment where he could have, you know, drawn the applause onto himself and, you know, celebrated the deal he cut. But instead, you know what he did? He got all of the trade union guys to stand up and ask the crowd to applaud them. 
And then as he walked around the distribution center after the deal had been cut, everyone was shaking his hands and patting his back and saying hello and saying, thank you so much for caring about me and my family. You see, he had power and he could have walked in and, and wrung the last little bit out of the workers, got the, got the, the best deal to, to push the profit. But he went in, he lowered his status, he made himself vulnerable And he actually enacted sacrifice and service of others. He used, he wielded his power like the lamb. There are so many cases of this that I've seen recently. I was talking to a a doctor, uh, and I know hospitals are difficult places to be. uh, And there's not a lot of time for like nice chit-chat and stuff. Uh, You know, and sometimes we think uh, being like the lamb is just being nice. But that's not really what it's about. Um, uh, this one junior doctor was describing to me a Christian boss he had who didn't have time for nice chit-chat, but he always put himself on the line when it mattered. One day this guy uh, woke up to a million missed calls on his phone and realized that a shift he was supposed to be at that he wasn't at, right? And at a hospital, that sort of matters. He rings up desperately and says, I'm so sorry, uh, uh, what's happening? And they're like, oh, don't worry, John's got it. He's like, John's got it. And, you know, this, he's a junior doctor, and John is not here, he's not here, he's not here, he's up there. And he's like, what? why would John come in? And he spoke to him about it later, and he says, were you really going to come in and take my shift for me? He's like, yeah, of course. Because though he's up here with a powerful position, he wielded his power, what? For the sake of the patients, for the sake of others. He forgot his status and instead sought to free others from pain. You have power, wield it like the lamb. Not exploiting, self-sacrificial service. You see, as we conclude, ultimately, what power you consider to be most captivating and stunning in the world is the power that you will enact in every situation, in every relationship that you have in your life. And what Roman, uh, Revelation 4 and 5 is doing is pressing upon you the difference between being a little Caesar and being a little lamb. And the reality is, is when you get into a position of power, we all want to act like a Caesar. The only thing that sets you free is the reality of understanding that Jesus Christ has had and does have more power than you could possibly imagine. He holds this room together as we speak. And yet he was willing to step down from his position of power, not only to sit in a pew like this, but to have people strip him of all of his power, even his power of life upon the cross. Why? To pay the price to take you out of your slavery to Caesarhood, that you might become a king like him. It's only when you see the lamb wielding his power to set you free from every slavery that you will ever possibly wield power like him. Let me pray. Father, we're thankful for this vision this evening of how power in this universe is used. That at the center is not a Caesar, is not a violent ruler, not a dominating dictator, but the slain lamb, the lion of Judah, the root of David, who triumphs through sacrificing himself.
Father, we want to confess that we are little Caesars tonight. That it is too much about us in the way we use power. And we ask that by your Spirit we might so see Jesus becoming powerless for us. That we might use our power to set others free rather than to enslave them. That we might bear the cost in our body rather than making others bear the cost to make us look great. Father, set us free this evening from our slavery to ourselves that we might live for Jesus' sake.